freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended, either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large, or in the common ruin of the contending classes. The stinking puddle from which usury, thievery and robbery arises is our lords and princes. They make all creatures their property, the fish in the water, the bird in the air, the plant in the earth must all be theirs. Then they proclaim God's commandments among the poor and say, you shall not steal. They oppress everyone, the poor peasant, the craftsmen are skinned and scraped. Thomas Münzer, Hochverursachte Schutzrede, 1524 Common Ruin, Episode 2. Omnia Sunt Communia, Christianity and Marxism in the Philosophy of Liberation. Philip S. joins Michael Acuna to discuss themes from the work of Argentine theologian Enrique Domingo Dussel Umbrosini. You asked me to read the anti-fetishism yes. section of Philosophy of Liberation which I, I read through twice now. I have a lot of thoughts on that, but before we delve into it, I was curious, you said that the book influenced you a lot in your own yes, development. Yes, in a way that, um, in a way that I could uh, bridge my affiliation with Marxist analysis and my uh, religiosity. I always felt so there, there's sort of a wall between those two that I, and uh, I never really knew how to um, connect them other than by some sort of intuition that I couldn't really articulate. But then right. I read this and I realized that the, uh, the, the, the nature of, of science uh, is, um, it is opening up these spaces uh, where the idols no longer have power. Uh, and I talked a little bit about it the last time, like the the uh, pagans fetishized nature and then Christianity comes along and says no nature is not divine and that was the basis for um, uh, development of uh, natural sciences that that was that was the um, abs uh, inescapable basis you know it, um, a basis you couldn't find anywhere else in the world other than in the Christian context and also uh, a base without which you couldn't have development of uh, physics of chemistry of biology uh, and so on. Uh, it, it is the prerequisite of uh, scientific endeavor at all. And I realized that uh, the way Marxism plays into this is exactly that Marxism denies the divinity of a system, that the, um, the ruling class uh, either uses spirituality and religion to justify uh, the system that benefits them, 
or it completely identifies the system with what they deem as uh, divine or valuable, worthwhile. And this is this is the bridge that I was looking for. The, um, this uh, cleansing atheism of Marxism is actually beneficial for a faithful person if he wants to cleanse himself of um, of some fetishes and idols he has, um, even even uh, without knowing. I wanted to connect this to. Uh, have you heard of uh, Simone Way? Right. So, so she was uh, for the most of her life a Marxist activist, uh, fought in the uh, Spanish civil war, but then became a Christian mystic. She claimed to have had visions of uh, Jesus and saints, and she wrote like like her her work is incredible. Like I can't even go into it right now because it's so complex and mystical. But uh, there is a passage that I'm looking for now. Uh, amazing. I, I recommend reading. Like this is just, uh, she wrote a lot during the Second World War, so it's a little bit fragmentary. But mm -hmm. um, she says, uh, religion as a source of comfort is abstraction to a true faith. In that sense, atheism has a cleansing property. I have to be atheist with that part of myself that isn't made uh, for God. Uh, among people that haven't awoken their uh, sense for the supernatural, the atheists are right and the religious are not right. Uh, she basically means that that if you don't have a sense for the supernatural and yet you uh, affiliate yourself with some religion, it is better than to be an atheist than to hold your religion as some sort of identity or culture. Uh, in this sense, uh, the atheism has a cleansing property, as she says. And uh, she, uh, um, Dussel, doesn't reference her anywhere I've seen, but it's basically he's basically making her point that the um, emptiness which is open when you defetishize and deny the divinity of the system, or, or actually not just the system, he speaks specifically in a social context, but uh, generally speaking, when you defetishize something and open and not open the non, the, the space of the non-being, you know, philosophical language, this is where you actually create space for something that is true, for something that is better, that, that, that was unavailable, unavailable to you before. So the way I, Look at this. Uh, I, I told you that, you know, Fichte said uh, everyone chooses philosophy based on their temperament. <laughs> and um, yeah. I'm very um, romanticist in my temperament. Mm -hmm. uh, and that brought me to a lot of uh, disappointment because, you know, the world does not cater to your romantic ideals. I also realized the that. The expression Weltsmerz, yeah. the world doesn't correspond to the romantic notion you have. Oh, yeah, but the, it's totally um, in the romantic movement itself, it's totally fetishized that, that sort of feeling, you know, Elan, mm. uh, chafe, as Turks would say. Yeah, but I, but I also realized that it, it's sort of bringing me to these spaces that I don't want to be in. When we talked about uh, nations, I, was, I, I wasn't prepared to completely say, yeah, I support left-wing nationalism, although I was a left-wing nationalist, I don't know, a few years ago. But I left that behind because I figured it, it's it's a total idol for me, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't want to be a part of it. And it, it brought me some sort of realizing that it brought me some sort of relief, like, like uh, I don't have these contradictions within myself anymore because I realized the truth of my own idol worship, you know. Mm -hmm. That was interesting. So it was sort of a clarifying process for you. And that is interesting how um, Enrique Dussel and uh, Simone kind of independently arrived at similar conclusions. While I was reading facets of this section, I was reminded of the epistles of Paul, 
and his remarks on idolatry. And I can see how there is a relationship. And there have been theologians of a Marxist orientation who have made similar remarks when analyzing Marx's theory of commodity fetishism, um, the overlap between Christian iconoclasm and the theory of fetishism in Marx's work. Since you mentioned the nation and since we're on the topic of idols or potential idols. That's something that I was thinking as I was reading through this, because there's almost a axiom that he's working with that mankind has this tendency toward the fabrication of idols. There's this fetishistic impulse within mankind. And I wonder if he attributes that to the fall of man or where he thinks that comes from. I do agree that it's important to recognize uh, where fetishes are in society and to dismantle them. But I also think that we can go too far in that direction. And then I started thinking about, say, Max Stirner and uh, postmodernism. You know, if you take this logic too far, it can lead to the abandonment of reason altogether. And I, I saw that as kind of a fault line here. So I haven't read the full text yet, so it's conceivable that he does address this later on. But I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on that. Well, uh, what uh, postmodernism definitely, that, that's a good point. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, postmodernism is peculiar in that way because he's, it seeks to defetishize everything, but in the same time, it, it kind of loves this nothingness, like it, it fetishizes the nothingness, you know? Mm -hmm. And the more you try to unfetishize things without knowing what comes after the, the abyss, the, 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 dark, the dark night of the soul, as uh, the saints would say, you actually maximize uh, your own fetish without knowing it and without addressing it. And I'd say that this chaos of terms and uh, pretentious, pretentious terminology and uh, completely uh, cynical view of uh, the future, which is inherent in postmodernism, it's actually the greatest fetish of all. That is this, like, the system will go on and I will just keep on writing how, how terrible it is. And maybe they advocate some sort of a chaotic, uh, like riots in the street and something like that. But but um, okay, so you, it's it's a carnival in every in most cultures. As far as I've researched, uh, there is a, a time period of uh, chaotic behavior so that you can prepare yourself for the period where you have to be disciplined and hardworking because otherwise you won't be able to survive. You won't be able to till the fields. That's why in Catholicism, the uh, uh, Fat Tuesday, I think it's called in America, which is, by the way, our Halloween, the nights where we dress up and go out for candy and scare, it's, it happens uh, somewhere in February, the first day before Lent. And during mm -hmm. Lent, we fast and uh, prepare ourselves for all the work we have to do. It's a peasant uh, culture, you know, it's based on agriculture. And it seems that postmodernists think that every day of the year should be a carnival. And that is rare, but even if they advocate some sort of actual practical change in society, it's always carnivalistic. And that's a fetish because it says this, we have to do this and nothing comes after. You said that it could lead to abandonment of reason. I never understood it in that way. I always understood that reason, reason is exactly the thing that it's, it's a tool. So we can recognize what the fetish is. And also reason itself can be fetishized. G.K. Chesterton, he, he said, uh, poets never go mad. Only mathematicians and logicians go mad because they have too much reason. Like lunacy, madness is the result of too much reason. So I'd mm -hmm. say like maybe we could put it, the tendency to fetishize reason 
is actually the abandonment, abandonment of reason. Let's frame this a little bit for people who might be listening. So you and I read section three of Philosophy of Liberation by Enrique Dussel. He, as far as I can determine, and you can clarify, because I don't know much about his biography, is a liberation theologist, and he is Argentinian. Um, I picked up, as I was reading this section, elements of a third worldist political orientation. I'm not entirely sure if that's correct or not, or if I'm just um, making excuses, but... Definitely, definitely influenced of dependency theory. Dependency theory, okay. He, he actually begins the book by outlining the sort of history of the fetish, of the fetish, the, the oppressive system, like uh, almost metaphysically a historical but also sort of situated in history to some sort of continuity so uh, for the greeks it was the being and non-being and being was identified with people who possessed logos the greeks themselves and all the others were barbarians the barbarians are then identified with non-being uh, and that was carried into um, the roman empire where the barbarians are in need to be conquered uh, and then to the Spanish Empire, the uh, Indians in South America need to be enslaved and uh, their land needs to be pillaged. Uh, and it continues into the modern global empire we have today with the center as, uh, as uh, the being, the divinized system, and the periphery as the non-being, as the place where the, the fetishistic struggle begins. And it feeds into the theory that the only way that global capitalism can end is if the third world nations liberate themselves and deny the center the resources. Now, economically, that might not be as sound as this sort of metaphysical uh, articulation, but I still think that within the third world, I, I, I don't know, I'm speaking as a wannabe third world person. <laughs> Croats are brainwashed into thinking they are the West because they were the slaves to the West as opposed to other South Slavic nations, which were the slaves to the Turks. It's completely Orientalist. And it's only, through history, it has only been defended by members of the Croatian nobility and bourgeoisie. And it was never a part of any progressive philosophical trend. From the perspective of a Croatian person, I'm seeing that, I can see uh, what Dussel is speaking about when he says that the periphery is the non-being. So, and I already talked about this, like we consider ourselves um, unable to construct a society. So we need someone else. We need either the Turks or the Austrians and now the European Union. And that's like, like it's um, relatable, relatable to me what he's talking about. And uh, I, uh, when thinking about this, I find, I find more, I find more sympathy with uh, third world nations than, than neighboring. Western nations. In that case, I'll simply say that I recognize a tension in myself on this question in particular. I, I read, as you and I have discussed this before, I reject almost all of the axioms of third world as political philosophy. But that is from a Marxist materialist perspective. Since, and I think we should probably specify our own theological positions and commitments before continuing, but since becoming a Christian myself, the sympathy that I have for the most underprivileged segments of humanity is such that I do believe they have a special ethical regard and their special commitments that Christians have towards those populations. I just don't think that they possess the agency in the dialectics of revolution that third worldists presume they have. So for me, there is kind of a normative tension there. 
but we'll set that aside for another day. Um, as far as my own theological commitments are concerned, as I said, I am a Christian. I take influence from the Gospels themselves, the early church fathers, some Orthodox and some Catholic theology, especially Aquinas. But I also find resonance in the uh, social Gospels of Protestantism. Thomas Munzer, for instance, uh, was a big influence on me. And so I'm not denominational. I don't go to services. I'm not baptized. I'm not uh, active in a church. I'm still finding my way because this has been a relatively recent conversion for me. I've been an atheist my entire life. I grew up in a secular household. I still regard myself as a materialist, but in the sense that I think Enrique Dussel would consider himself a critical materialist. I liked that introduction, that distinction that he makes, and I hope we can get into that shortly. But why don't you um, share your theological position and commitments? Right. So I would say I'm an Orthodox Catholic regarding theology itself, more influenced by the uh, Augustine and Neo Neoplatonism than uh, Aquinas's Aristotelianism, mostly influenced by Latin American liberation theology and personalism of the uh, Catholic worker movement, uh, Peter Morin and Dorothy Day. Uh, also a lot of uh, Russian philosophy, Orthodox Christian philosophy developed in Russia, uh, Vladimir Solovyov, uh, Nikolai Berdyaev, and so on. Uh, so I'd say that my the meta-ideology or ide uh, my metaphysical ideology is personalism, which is, um, you know, it's not, it's not so radical to say you're a personalist in Catholic circles, uh, although I, I say I'm taking it to its logical conclusion into the Marxist praxis. Right, so Latin American liberation theology, it's a movement that was started in the, during the Cold War in Latin America, but it had previous uh, like uh, germs even during the colonial Spanish time where the priests defended uh, the, the natives from exploitation by the Spanish conquistadors. And um, after the Cuban Revolution, the Conference of Bishops in Latin America decided to focus on social issues and Gustavo Guterres, the founder of the official liberation theology, uh, wrote a book where he articulated how the uh, orthopraxis of Christian life relates to political action. And the axiom is that Christ himself came into the world to become a poor man, a working man, uh, part of an oppressed uh, nation dur uh, during a time when the Roman Empire was at the peak of its power and he, by his own will, suffered everything that the oppressed people suffer and we have the duty to do the same. Although not in the, not in a way that we uh, masochistically engage in some sort of um, like, like walking on shards of glass and uh, flogging ourselves, but, but in the sense of rejecting lie of the material wealth and uh, focusing our energies on fighting for the cause of the poor and the oppressed. That's, that's the basic premise of liberation theology. I think liberation theology, in many instances, from what I've read of it over the years, is fairly decent biblical exegesis. I think that most of the tenets are justifiable. I have in, in recent months, because as I said, I my familiarity with liberation theology was just a passing curiosity before my conversion. But now I've, I've been reviewing it with a more critical eye. And there are instances where I feel like the textual exegesis is a little strange 
constrained, but nevertheless in interesting ways. So I see why you find resonance in it. I, I think just this divulging of our influences demonstrates a somewhat of a dispositional distinction between you and I, where um, you find resonance in, say, the uh, Neoplatonism of Augustine, and I'm uh, more akin to uh, the Aristotelianism of Aquinas. And I can see why you might find from that basis, you might gravitate towards mysticism and those tenets of Christian faith. Whereas for me, that's always been somewhat, it's not that I'm not interested in it. I just, I, it's difficult for me to conceptualize. It's a, it's a digression, but uh, I read a novel by one Montenegrin author uh, where he starts, like, like he describes the life of this um, son of a baker and uh, the baker asks his son, uh, do you want to be a Platonist or Aristotelian when you grow up? And the first son says Aristotelian, the second son says Platon. Platonist and um, the Aristotelian one becomes very successful and the uh, Platonist one becomes poor. Uh, so it's the idea that if you choose to be a Platonist, you're going to, you're going to be a martyr or, <laughs> or uh, suffer terribly because you're not realistic about the world. Yeah, you're contemplating the realm of the forms. You're elsewhere, whereas uh, the Aristotelian is very practically minded and analytical. I love Plato. I always have a deep, uh, enduring respect and admiration for Platonic thought. It's just the more mystical elements thereof that have always been somewhat challenging for me to try to occupy that space conceptually. It's, uh, it's as Fichte said, it, it depends on your uh, temperament. You know? Exactly, exactly. And I get the sense when in reading um, Dussel that he probably would uh, more align in that platonic mystical tradition. Even in just his prose can be a little opaque at times, and he tends to towards um, idiosyncratic usage of terminologies. So for instance, his use of the, the word atheist as a negation or as the counter fetish, as opposed to what is colloquially understood as disbelief and divinity. I found that initially a little uh, challenging while going through the, the passage, but um, once you get a hang of how he's employing terms, you know, it's very much in the continental philosophical tradition, whereas I am more coming out of an analytical tradition, so I get a little frustrated at times when I see that, <laughs> just because I, I demand clarity and I demand people defining their terms. Just It, it makes for less interesting reading, but when we're trying, when we're discussing political philosophy, I always feel like it's Im imperative. That, that's why I like uh, our dynamic. We function as a sort of uh, balance. Yeah, I agree. I find it very useful. But I, I highlighted a few passages that I, I wanted to go over with you and see uh, where you and I may differ on how we interpret them and what we think the implications are. So um, one of them is where he says, uh, the metaphysical theory of creation gives fluidity to the whole and to all of its parts. Neither the cosmos nor the world nor any system is divine. The theory of creation denies such divination and affirms disbelief in fetishism. The fetish itself is a creature, workmanship of human hands only, a creature made by a creature. That is, if everything is created, nothing is divine. The theory of creation is the 
um, atheization of the cosmos and of the world. I think that's kind of the crux of his point, right? That if one posits creation and a creator, all of the institutions and all of the social relations of man are necessarily contingent. I think that where I differ from Dussel is in the sense that I think you can have some of these institutions, and I think, in fact, that one must have some of these institutions in an unfetishized way. So we were discussing the nation as an idol or as a fetish, for instance. I think you can have a nation devoid of that. I think that you can have a more grounded, rational form of a nation that doesn't uh, necessarily entail divination and also uh, oppression of the other. Nations yeah. are inherently exclusionary. You know, that's kind of the point. Um, but even in scripture, we see nations are presupposed. If you go over the Gospels and the Old Testament, uh, everything is framed in national terminology. Even into Revelation, it's mentioned. So I, I don't see a moment from a Christian point of view where we can say that the nation is abandoned as such. So I would say that when he says everything is created, nothing is divine, I think he means in the sense that you cannot pluck things out of their, the chain of being, let's say, that mm -hmm. uh, things have a purpose according to God's will. And we have a hierarchy of values, you know. And if you take things out of its proper place in the hierarchy, let's say the nation, then you fetishize it and it becomes the, the idol. Like the river, which was worshipped, you know, as a god, is divine only in the sense that its uh, beauty and its um, existence in the physical world serves a purpose which is laid out by God. So only in that sense we can say that things are divine and that things are worth of respect. Uh, and I don't think that Dussel is claiming that uh, the creation is worthless because it's not divine. That's that's not his point. Although although you were right when he's he's he is unclear in his uh, terminology and sometimes. Uh, uses sort of woo woo mystical language, but also you have to realize this this book is uh, his later work and it's a condensation of mm -hmm. of his entire uh, life's work in philosophy. So that's why the um, the paragraphs are numbered. It's almost like he's he's not really discussing. He's just uh, writing down these maxims and wisdoms that he condenses out of his entire life's thinking. Yeah, it's more in an aphoristic prose as opposed right. to a yeah. syllogism. He has other books, you know, a little, even a little bit easier to read, uh, where he goes into, into a little bit more detail. But even so, but even so, I love this book because it, in a, in a very succinct way, demonstrates what is actually the enemy. It's not just the the set of terms and concepts in 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 uh, materialist analysis. It's actually it, it relates to the basic way people organize people uh, orient themselves in the world according to their sensibilities according to their needs it's it's existential in a way it has to do with with purpose and with meaning everyone is talking about the meaning crisis but i think another crisis that is coming and it's slowly taking root is the crisis of arbitrary meaning and maybe we can go later into that but i found for example, the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, I think it's an example of what I'm saying, the arbitrary meaning, like he, he says why meaning is good, but he doesn't say what is this meaning. For him, it's and, almost incidental, in fact. Like he, yeah, um, well, he's a pragmatist, but, but uh, yeah. pragmatists aren't interested in truth or 
maybe they'll say they are interested in truth because being interested in truth brings good results for your life. But it's um, always an instrumental value. Right. It's yeah. functionalist. So even like, so even like the, the 12 rules for life. And oh my God, that's a bad book. He talks about yeah. how if you are if you are like Socrates, you will you will be able to like if you learn these lessons and he, he has 10 pages on what you can learn from Socrates. He says that if you accept these and uh, integrate them in your life, you, you're going to be brave and unshakable, uh, like in the face of adversity. But you know, it's like <laughs> Socrates died because of his at least like hagiographically, like like the legend of Socrates is that he died because of his commitment to the truth. Yeah. And uh, um, if you say the truth is good because it brings you good things, like no, the truth can bring bad things, but doesn't mean it's not the truth and doesn't mean and that you should be. It's also to fundamentally misunderstand Socratic ethics. Like the, the entire purpose of virtue is that they're goods in and of themselves. Like they, that's why they're virtues. It's not because they have an instrumental utility lesser virtues are if you're if we're talking about aristotelian virtues that are endemic to a practice then those are a means to an end but if we're talking about socrates specifically and say the four cardinal virtues that derive from socratic and platonic philosophy to use those as a, a way of exemplifying some kind of utilitarian functionality is kind of to miss the point it is true if we have a eudaimonist conception of the good life which I do, I that's part of the ethical framework I operate under, that you will have a fulfilling life if you apply the virtues in such a way. But the point is that when you're living in indecent times, to live a virtuous life can be challenging and it can be, it can yield hardship and suffering. And it's weird because Peterson, I think, acknowledges that. He has a very tragic conception of the human condition. It, it reminds one of, you know, the most gloomy of Russian literary figures like or almost uh maybe uh schopenhauer-esque philosophy like that's the the vision of the world that you get from jordan peterson if you actually follow him closely so it's it there's a lot of contradictions he's not a very good systemic thinker he tends to oscillate and embed his work in contradictions that are irresolvable He's an enigmatic figure, to be sure. And you're right, he's a good source of showing the crisis of meaning in the world today. He's sort of the, the conservative response to that crisis. And then on the uh, liberal side, we have just these synthetic communities that develop, kind of ephemeral. They're, in my opinion, entirely consistent with the logic of uh, the commodity form. In other words, they're not true sources of, of meaning. I think that they're too hollow to serve that. Um, but th that sort of gets back to my perennialist uh, conception of meaning and value. And that brings to bear on a few questions in this text, again, when we're talking about trying to delineate fetishism and idolatry from social relations. Like, what is a de-fetishized social relation? What, how far does that go? And it's not clearly uh, articulated in this passage, although I imagine he probably gets into it at some point in the text. Yeah, he definitely, he definitely does. And what and what you said uh, about the synthetic communities, hundred percent. Nikolai Berdyaev, the Russian existentialist thinker, he had an idea that the history moves in rhythm. So it's not just uh, the epochs and the various developments. There's a rhythm between the day and the night. He 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 uses these terms also 
like sorry it's <laughs> he refers to poets instead of scientists i think that the idol of science that emerged in the 19th century resulted in a mass disenchantment that the church previously occupied that the church the world was more enchanted in that sense and it was on along a theological axis if you will the idol of science succeeded largely in the process of disenchantment once the process of disenchantment began i think it it left open uh, a void that certain figures like nietzsche found optimism in they thought that you know there could be projects the existentialists thought that you could use that void and a productive way but i think that the more likely outcome is what you specified where there will be a new enchantment right now the enchantment is mammon that's what capitalism has effectively rendered but now due to the capital's own cultural contradictions now we're entering another phase of nihilism so something else has to come into the void mammon itself is insufficient that's why we have this crisis of meaning that we had just talked about the contradictions are emerging in such a way that something has to follow it it's just unclear as to what that will be as you and i are both communists we would hope that it would be transcending this mode of production and trying to attain a society wherein meaning can be found through unalienated productive social labor and as christians through communion with christ but I, given the trajectory i don't feel so optimistic obviously i think before we get there we're going to go through another period where there will be a reenchantment but of an unknown variety and it's a little foreboding when you think about it but you can see signs yeah. in the culture like you said except for i guess world war 2 i think now is the most uh, appropriate time to quote uh, uh, was it kautsky socialism or barbarism uh, <laughs> and the barbarism i think is um, this period of night that Berge is talking about materialistically you can you can find you can find the reasons uh, why barbarism prevailed this is important and i have to commend um, enrique dussel for mentioning this in the text where he goes over the naive materialism of engels which was an idol unto itself and you see this throughout marxist history and to this very day where there are a lot of smuggled assumptions and normative commitments that come in by way of allegedly dispassioned materialist analysis So we have all of these implicit ethics that go unstated under the rubric of scientific analysis but nevertheless are presented as the immutable facts of the historical dialectic that history itself is going in a direction that is going to reconcile and resolve and create a world with all the values that these activists have but are too afraid to admit they have while i was reading this text it it reads much like a marxist humanist literature which i appreciated because i think that it's more honest i part company with a lot of marxist humanist figures just because i disagree with aspects of their ethics but i at least appreciate the fact that they are stating their subjective commitments outright whereas figures like althusser and then engels at times and people in the stalinist tradition they pretend as if they're just dispassioned observers when 
you couldn't really be um, throughout Marx. And Marx himself had this uh, problem where he relativized justice. I think it, he was taking his cues from the Kantian notion that ought implies can. So um, if we examine history, and I, I have to agree with Marx, except I think that history is, we could read it as more of a theological theodicy of sorts, where mankind has had to go through the problem of evil in the material sense, the problem of evil would be uh, previous modes of production that necessarily entailed human exploitation and suffering to eventually have the means by which to actualize a just order. Um, but Marx played with the language a little bit, even though if you read Capital, it's replete, it's suffused with normative language. The very notion of exploitation itself is a normative category. He uses it in a descriptive, positive sense quite often, but he switches between the two. And this is something that Marxists have a problem with. They, the, the Marxists that have more of a Althusserian orientation tend to simply look at exploitation in that positive sense. And then, like Marx himself, they'll occasionally lapse into normative language with exploitation, whereas the Marxist humanists do the opposite. I think it's better to just be straightforward with how we're employing the terminology. But my main point is that Marxists cannot escape the question of normativity. It's there. And I don't believe that history itself is unidirectional. I don't think that once if we should attain a higher mode of production, if communism comes to fruition at some point, there are still normative questions that have to be answered. History itself is not going to solve them for you. There's challenges. There's going to be disagreements. What is uh, a virtuous life? What is sin? What is virtue? All of these questions remain. It's part of the human condition. I think there's answers to the questions. I'm not a postmodernist. I don't think that it's all relative. I think some answers yield better results. But the point is that Marxists need to be more transparent in acknowledging this. It was well stated by Dussel when he was talking about the fetish of materialism. That is one of the most problematic aspects of it, this notion that um, the material dialectic itself is going to resolve all of these challenges that have uh, been with us since the dawn of man. It's imperative to carefully read this passage until it says that pure atheism without affirmation of the infinite other is not sufficiently critical. It permits the fetishization of a future system. He gave the best criticism of all of most of the past communist projects uh, in one sentence. Because in the Soviet Union, and you can criticize Soviet Union from an anarchist or Trotskyist or uh, orthodox perspective, but I think that all those analyses fall short, that they are useful, they are helpful, but uh, they fall short of, of his uh, insight, uh, which is to say that in, in the systems that try to implement communism but fail, the, the only thing that remains for the, the ruling party or uh, the new ruling class, the bureaucracy, is to maintain power. And in order to maintain power, they have to convince people that their power serves a purpose to bring about communism. That's the fetish of communism, the idol. Among other meanings, fetish can also mean a replacement. And so if you don't want to engage with life and these hard questions in your lived experience in the present, then you are actually worshipping at the altar of this imagined future. And it's only imagined. It can, the, the way that sometimes when you read, uh, especially the, what was the name, 
uh, the futurist poets in Soviet Union. Uh, I think it's the best example of this. Even Yesenin, and I like Yesenin, but he has one poem when he says that he will he will uh, lick the paint of the icons of the saints and will put uh, Lenin's words on it. He's not aware of it, but he's actually filling the religious structure with materialist content. But the structure remains religious and there's no way out of it. Specifically, like since I mentioned Soviet Union, there was a disagreement between Maxim Gorky and Lenin on the question of God building. I don't know. I don't know if you heard about that. Yeah. Yes. So Lenin rejected God building, but I think that he was part of it too, even though he wasn't. Actually, he was uh, even more consistent with it because he never used the religious language. But the, the language that he used was just putting materialist content into religious frame. Like all the issues of human existence and uh, experience in the world will be resolved when we achieve communism. And uh, the way this dictates our values is that what is valuable is that which helps to bring communism about. I think that's the clearest case of the time when communism was fetishized, which is which is a real shame because communism is supposed to defetishize the existing system. Maybe the problem is when Marx was uh, writing it, it wasn't um, in vogue to be a uh, to be a radical and to be rebellious. And now we, we have fetishized this. This is specifically the problem of postmodernism. The, the postmodernists almost enjoy their otherness. When you were discussing God building, I was reminded of the Jacobins and the cult of reason um, during the French Revolution. I think that it's unavoidable. Uh, mankind has a yearning. And then this may be the the very uh, at the start of our discussion, we were talking about whether fetishism is some kind of immutable facet of human psychology, and I think it does derive from the element of human nature that yearns for the noumenal, for the divine. And so, if we don't have something, some kind of source to to derive that. I wouldn't call it irrational, but non-rational feeling that Super the notion of the sublime, um, we will create it ourselves and we will imbue it with meaning far beyond its worth. And we can look at history, we can look at political philosophies, we can look at any number of things, pop cultural phenomena as instantiations of that impulse once it reaches the state, the level of fetish. It is critical, I think, that Marxism can be used as a method to detect and to dismantle fetishism and idolatry, the same way that Christianity proper can. But similarly, both Christianity and Marxism and communism can themselves be transformed into idols. That, in the case of the Soviet Union, that's an excellent Instance, and I think Alistair McIntyre, I don't know if you've ever read uh, his book, Marxism and Christianity, but in the final chapter, he highlights that part of the problem is because Marxists, especially starting in the second international, but I would argue all the way from the first international, have a tendency to place their objectives, their normative commitments into the future. As we were talking, they historicize ethics in that way. So everything can be viewed as a means to that end. And I think part of political maturity is understanding that the society we desire might not be actualized in our lifetime, and we need to be okay with that. But nevertheless, the notion that the normative 
value can only be actualized in the future is a problem. And I think all of the Bolsheviks suffered, including Trotsky, from that point of view. Once you start doing that, then you can relativize the most barbaric behavior towards those you view as an obstacle. So McIntyre's project at the time was to try to return to the Marxism of the economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844, where he discusses alienation and show that within the Marxist tradition, there is a trans-historical notion of normativity. There's trans-historical values that can be actualized and worked on here and now that should orient how we treat one another. And I also think this is where Socratic ethics bring to bear on how we should conceive of these issues. Because again, communism will solve the question of the exploitation of man by man, but that still leaves open all the other areas of ethical concern that mediates, but that doesn't represent the totality of. I think that those questions still will remain with us and they're with us now, and we can choose to act on them in ways that are productive or not. But I think that it behooves us to do the former. Yep, I would agree, especially uh, we should accentuate uh, this trans-historical values that you mentioned. It is clear that when you say to a Marxist that there are some values and commitments that don't that aren't derived from history itself, but have implications for history, and we can study the way that they interact with history, and that's what uh, material material analysis is. Uh, but if you say to them they exist independently of history, they will say, well, that's just that's uh, that's just alienation coming to you. And then I will ask them, well, what is well, how do we resolve this then? Uh, and he says history will uh, resolve resolve it itself. And by saying that, and I've encountered a lot of Marxists that say things like that. Uh, by saying that, like he has, like like I I go to church and uh, I'm obliged to believe that I eat the body of my God every Sunday. Uh, but he has more faith than me. Yeah, yeah. Because if communism is a solution to, if communism, if you say communism is a solution to man's existence, then you are completely distancing yourself from this existence that you speak of. So that means that you will be separated from it because you don't find it comfortable or you don't find it meaningful uh, and that you will just wait until this savior of history comes. Also gives the person who is issuing that statement carte blanche to behave as they wish to now because they don't believe that they have ethical duties here and now. It, right, so it, that way communism isn't actually, like like communism is only, uh, they might not be aware of it, but uh, co uh, communism doesn't, act, they, they aren't interacting with even the concept of communism when they say things like that, because it's it's uh, clear it's clearly a excuse to postpone praxis. Exactly. So communism um, becomes uh, a spook, let's say, like uh, it's a Sternerian term, but it becomes just another rhetorical device uh, on a subconscious level to disregard uh, the trauma of reality. And exactly. and I don't think that even the greatest mystics and even the greatest uh, thinkers. Nobody has entered this ontological world without experiencing the pain of reality. I mean, I, I think most of our remarks would be pertinent towards the reductionist faction of Marxists, which there are considerable. 
anyone who, especially a Marxist Leninist, I think that you find this orientation strongly among Leninists of any variety. But then among the Marxist humanists who I had mentioned, they have a more accurate apprehension of the realm of normativity and how it influ- and how it should influence praxis. But I feel that they their normative ethics are ill-conceived and wrong most of the time. We could see that among Marxists who have unwittingly or wittingly incorporated radical liberalism into their general political philosophy. The problem is that those movements and commitments are devoid of reason or justification in many instances. It might be cliche, but I'm a big fan of Ernesto Che Guevara especially because he was clearly moved by a sort of humanistic impulse towards suffering people. And uh, his Marxism was actually derived from it. So he was in no way reductionist. He actually, uh, once interviewer asked him, what is the one key component that should uh, that a revolutionary should have? And he said, um, permit me to sound ridiculous, uh, but it's love. Like uh, revolutionary should be moved by great feelings of love towards uh, the suffering man. And I think that's, like, I, I would think uh, from a Christian perspective, Che Guevara is something of a virtuous pagan. Like he's yeah. a Christian, in no way, he, he's in no way Christian, but uh, he has tremendous, uh, this moral fortitude cannot be a derivation from some sort of a scientific mindset. The reductionist tries to escape in objectivity. But if you have a careful reading of Marx, you see that the basis for his most reductionist comments were in, they were sensible extrapolations at the time. Like I could give Marx credit for being reductionist and unduly optimistic about revolution when examining material conditions in the 19th century in the centers of capitalist development. Today, you couldn't look at the same objective factors and have that sense of optimism. I don't even think that sense of optimism was justified back then, but it was more sensible at the time than it is now. The point is that you can't avoid subjectivity. Lenin, to his credit, acknowledged it. But again, his his solution was simply the party, having a vanguard party. That doesn't go far enough. That's not sufficient in my estimation. The vanguard party, if we reduce it to its constituent elements, a lot of parties since that time have emulated the model and have had trivial success. You can say that it's because objective material conditions were not conducive, but I think the model itself is ill-suited and we saw the shortcomings of the model in the Soviet experiment. What happened after the fact, once they did attain a degree of power. It was in many ways disastrous from my point of view, especially if I'm examining it from a normative framework. That's not to say that I don't acknowledge the historical contingencies that influenced some of the decision-making, but I also think that the Bolsheviks themselves were operating from a psychological framework that absolved them of responsibility, of normative responsibility that should not have happened. Again, these are the dangers inherent when you fetishize the material, when you have a naive materialism like Dussel is emphasizing. That, to me, was probably the most important intervention that I found in this chapter. Because we're, you know, we're, we're all familiar as Marxists of the problem of fetishism and as Christians of idolatry. But when you turn the lens onto yourself, it's far more revealing and, inf- and important. 
So this was an interesting passage. You and I went over part of this already, but he states, for those who hold themselves responsible and in peril for the sake of the oppressed, nothing is allowed to impede their feeding of the hungry, not even the private property, natural or divine, in historical and fetishized reality, of the one who has obtained bread unjustly. Everything can be modified in order to serve the oppressed. So this is uh, Dussel's ethical imperative that is definitely inspired by the Gospels. I thought that that was pertinent in, in the sense of what we're discussing in activism and, and why maintaining that perspective is of is of utility and importance for us. That reminded me of Che Guevara also. There's a sense of urgency that one gets if you really internalize that logic. It's a very Christian thing to acknowledge that love is a terrible thing. If you love the poor, be ready to end up like Che Guevara. Right, exactly. Actually, be ready to end up like Jesus. Yeah, he has uh, one, one another text. Actually, it's not a text, it's more like a letter or a, st a statement. And he ends it with, we cannot be good Christians unless we are good atheists of the fetish. Let it not be said that we Christians are atheists of the true God. Atheists because we have not criticized the system because we have lived within it uh, with the spirit that gives us powers to function better within it. That spirit, the spirit of the system within, is not of God, it is of the devil. And the only criterion of discernment that our spirit is the spirit of God is if we struggle unto the death for the poor. That is an objective, concrete, Christological criteria. I was hungry, you gave me to eat. End of his statement. We can't have non-fetishized materialism without, how does he put it, absolute other. And he means God by absolute other. So he's basically saying, um, how do we know that we're not fetishizing? Uh, we need to have God in our system. How do you know that your choice of decision is in line with what God plans for you? You can know after these excruciating exercises, you know, that they're hard, but you can, you can discern them. And if we try to apply this to uh, political action, the, well, we, we return to the uh, virtue ethics. You have to practice virtue. And there is no formula for it that I can lay out right now. I would say that definitely accept humility as a virtue. If you're, if you're like a Marxist and you accept that you have something that you fetishize, accept that you are functioning within an ethic that you haven't really articulated, the, 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 normative, the normative element that you described. So I would say to him, acknowledge this normativism that you cling to and be humble. The, you, you mentioned previously uh, Augustinian humility, which is one of the greatest virtues, and go into the world practicing those virtues as best as you can. Like that's, that's not a formula, but it's uh, the best I can offer right now on the question of, you know, how do we know? One thing I wanted to ask you on a kind of a biographical note, since we're talking about the tendency towards fetishism and idolatry, we could view the Protestant Reformation as a form of Christian atheism in Dussel's sense, where we're using atheism in a, as a verb as opposed to a noun, and we're acknowledging uh, precisely where idolatrous behavior was found in the church historically. And I find resonance in those tenets of Reformation, um, which is why I'm not a Catholic. And then within the Reformation itself, there was another corrective with Thomas Munzer, where he was um, involved in the peasant uprising against Martin Luther, whom he had previously 
shared theological commitments were. So even within the Reformation itself, it became a fetish. It became idolatrous in its own right because it decided to affirm the power of the princes against the people. So we keep seeing this over and over again, this tendency towards the erection of idols and fetish. But how could one given the history of the Catholic Church, and and since it is a religion that is so fixated on the notion of historical continuity, um, how could one remain a Catholic in good standing whilst being mindful of its own history of idolatry and of fetishism? Uh, Great question. Regarding Munzer, I still haven't actually personally resolved because I do sympathize with Munzer, but he was excommunicated by the church so like i'm i'm obliged to oppose him based on that so i haven't resolved that and i can give a good answer but uh regarding how how can one remain catholic after such history yeah it's a great question it's a question i struggle with but it's the idea that the continuity that is upheld in the catholic tradition is the idea that once you have a community that is dedicated to summoning the holy spirit uh, so that he can guide the human action in the world, in this fallen world. If you remain faithful to that, then it will be what it's supposed to be, even when it falters. And uh, if you seek it elsewhere, like outside of the church, you will cause more fragmentation and more idolatry, because the church is one. You know, I, I'd even agree with some theologians that say that the Protestants are part of, like in conventional terminology. But uh, the church recognizes the sacrament of baptism among Protestants, uh, which means that the church accepts that Catholic Church accepts that Protestants are part of Christian community, let's say, that they are part of Christ's faith. I heard a metaphor, Catholics are eating at a table and uh, Protestants are eating what falls down from the table, so, so they, they won't starve, they won't starve, but uh, it's better if you bring them to the table. So like, that's a little harsh. But what it tries to point out is what you what you seek in the criticism of the church, and it's absolutely legitimate to criticize the church, even within the church. We had uh, Catholics had their own reformation. Ignatius of Loyola, among others, was a great reformer. So it's not like we don't or shouldn't acknowledge our mistakes. But what you seek outside the church is the church itself, and it will only be what it's supposed to be if you cling to it, if you remain faithful. You ask me, so I tell you my understanding of it, but I realize that this won't convert anyone by saying this. So I basically said, it doesn't matter what the church does, you have to believe that it's good, and if you believe it's good, it will be good. That's basically my point. That It's a terribly unconvincing uh, point, but it's well, the I point didn't... that the church makes. I didn't expect us to convert one another, as it were. I <laughs> just um, and and you know this is probably no. I don't like I don't like uh, this. Like we have enough division. We don't need division among yeah, ourselves. Yeah. Just... Exactly. And I genuine. I mean, it's a subject that interests me. But I, for purposes of this discussion, it, it exceeds the scope of what we're discussing. I uh, just su- just one thing, just one more thing on the subject of idolatry. I'm not sure what you meant, but the use of statues and uh, images uh, that's not idolatry. No, no, I didn't mean it in the iconoclastic sense of idolatry, but more so the tendency towards divinizing certain, like papist infallibility, even Mariology tenets of that, the Immaculate Conception, things of of that sort. I, as Ah. somebody who doesn't uh, 
subscribe to those because I just don't find much biblical justification for them. I wondered. I, I, I regard it as, if not idolatrous, tending in that direction. Sola Scriptura is a bad doctrine. These ideas were introduced, and I, I know that even the way that they were introduced, part of it has to be by reference to scripture or interpretation of scripture. Some of it has to be, could be from revealed knowledge. I don't know, um, mysticism of sorts, but we just return to my own issues with mysticism where I have a problem uh, accepting, or at least not accepting, but I feel kind of alienated from that entire paradigm. Yeah, there was a Russian mystic. I, I mentioned him. I I'm, um, I like reading him, although sometimes he goes so far into it that even I say, well, that's 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 a little bit too dark. That's a little bit too unsensible, at least for me. Vladimir Solovyov. Yeah, he developed a doctrine. He called actually it's not a doctrine. It's more of a theological discipline called uh, sophiology, and he identified the agnostic Sophia and the uh, philosophical concept of, of wisdom, uh, he then identified them with Mary. Mm. And he, uh, and this is sort of apocryphal to his own writings, and uh, scholars aren't, there isn't any consensus if he actually held this view or not, but he was accused of uh, considering Mary a third person in the Trinity, a fourth, wow. fourth person okay. in the Trinity. Uh, that's some Jungianism that I can't really ascribe to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but. That but, I uh, think once you start doing that, the Trinitarian doctrine just falls apart. We can, we mustn't uh, divinize figures that are obviously of special reverence and of uh, important place scripturally. But nevertheless, we have to acknowledge that undermines not only the Holy Trinity, but even the concept of monotheism itself, where God is one essence with three persons. Like we throw Mary in the mix and who else? Uh, Abraham. I mean, like David. Where does it end? Oh yeah, it's uh, yeah. I don't. I don't uh, subscribe to it. Since we are discussing the fetish and the idol, right? So two points. I'm looking through uh, Simon Way's work, Need for Roots, uh, which I wholeheartedly recommend. Excellent. Book. Okay, I will read uh, that. Her last book. Can't find the passage right now, but she talks about how Dostoevsky says. Uh, even if Christ isn't the truth, I would still pick him over the truth. And she says that's a terrible blasphemy because Christ says he is the truth. Right. Uh, and she says, he says for himself, he is the truth, but he's also uh, the bread and the wine. So for her, there is this diet of the truth and the food, you know. And it seems to me that things that are good, like, like Aristotelian temporal goods, have their truth and their food. They are good for the soul. That's the food part. They they feed something in us that needs to be fed. But if you uh, only focus on the food of it and not the truth of it, then you create a fetish. And for her, mysticism itself can be a fetish, which is ironic because she was a mystic. You know uh, Bergson, if I'm pronouncing him correctly. Yeah. Ilan Vital. Ilan. Uh, yeah. She says uh, that Ilan Vital is a clear case of fetishized mysticism. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mystics, mystics don't become mystics because they seek the exper mystical experience for the food it brings, you know, for the good feeling of it. Uh, mystics are people who allow, who empty themselves so that the truth can take up the empty space. And now it seems to me spiritual values aren't non-existent in the modern world. They are just reduced to food. There's no truth in it. There's only the food. There's only the feeling you get when you defeat an enemy or um, approach the underworld and get reborn. 
it doesn't change your character. It doesn't provide you any spiritual development. It only satisfies your need to have a link to spirituality, but without any truth in it. And like people who, let's say they're atheists, but they enjoy Marvel movies and they play uh, video games based on Norse mythology and things like that. They they almost base their entire identity on these irrational mythological archetypal uh, stories, uh, but they don't acknowledge their real value. They only acknowledge the value it has to them. You know, like I do it for fun. I play games for fun. I watch these movies for fun. That's all it means to me. So this distinction between the spiritual food and the spiritual truth is, I think, the crux of the issue why we fetishize because we want the food without the truth. And that's the beginning of fetishization. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, that's actually a very apt metaphor. I think that's useful. As you were speaking, I was reminded of uh, Kierkegaard's tripartite distinction. So the aesthetic life, the ethical life, and the religious life. And um, we could say that at this moment in our culture, we're in a abject aesthetic life where people are on the hedonic treadmill living for the accumulation of pleasures and pleasures alone. The ethical life is obviously superior to that because it is the pursuit of something beyond oneself, something of enduring value, something that can contribute to one's life. But the uh, contradiction between the ethical and the religious is found precisely in the sense that once you ascend to the point of view of spiritual maturity, there will be instances where um, what is sound theologically, religiously, spiritually will be at odds with what might be contributive of a flourishing life for oneself. You may have to go through periods of struggle and hardship. Just think of fasting, for instance. You know, you could make the argument that fasting, not only is it antithetical to the aesthetic life, but it's also it could be antithetical to the ethical life at times. It might result in you not being able to make an ethical decision just out of physical incapability, for instance. And yet it is imperative for the religious life. That is an interesting uh, way of looking at the current predicament that mankind is facing. Even if we look in terms of political philosophy and sociology, we could say that capitalism is the apotheosis of the aesthetic life. It functions solely on that basis. Communism will be an improvement because it's transcending mankind towards an ethical life, a more flourishing life of deeper meaning. But then you could say that um, in terms of modes of production, mankind will never reach the religious life until, until the second coming. That is when we will have, um, you know, when Christ reigns on earth. That is when you would have the religious life in terms of a material reality, as opposed to just a subjective uh, experience. I read a paper by a British Islamic theologian, oh, weird, com weird combination, Esme L.K. Partridge. I, I'm not even sure she's Muslim, but she specializes in Islamic theology, and she's uh, very interesting to read. And she wrote a paper that uh, TikTok actually contributed to the to, uh, contributed to the the new enchantment, because on TikTok there have been trends of like witch talk and uh, astrology and things yeah. of that nature. And I think that it goes even deeper than her analysis because she just describes these you know, astrology and witchcraft existed before TikTok, but uh, TikTok kind of made them more popular. Uh, I think that's even. I think it goes even deeper than that. Not only does it make things more visible and more popular, uh, it creates 
the new forms of spirituality. And this was this is actually hard for me to convince people that it's truly the case that we are entering the new era of mysticism. And I also, and this is a hard thesis to, to develop, but I think that Feuerbachian criticism of religion, and by extension Marxist criticism of religion, applies perfectly to the cultural state that we're in, because it's no longer the religion that creates a duality of man and his essence, in Feuerbach's formulation, uh, but it's the movies, video games, uh, social media, those things divide the human psyche. It, they create uh, new identities, uh, false personas, um, and they fragment the way that we operate in the world. When Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, I think that he was on the right track uh, saying that there is something that takes our mind off the problems in the real world to imagine some sort of a heavenly cloud world. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think it's not religion or it's not religion anymore. It's no. the media. Yeah, I made I actually I, uh, made that same point on Twitter um, a few months back because I was I had a particularly nauseating experience at a big blockbuster film and it just brought to mind that the spectacle now is the entertainment spectacle is the opium of the masses, but not in the dignified way that religion once was like that. Now we're going back to enchantment, disenchantment and reenchantment. Like the enchantments of religion were far more meaningful. Like they structured people's lives. It ennobled people. This is, uh, if anything, the spectacle merely incentivizes further vice, further myopia, further alienation. It's far worse than Marx ever could have imagined. The reason why I'm still um, a staunch sociological materialist is because I think uh, the spectacle is so effective at creating mass apathy and contentment that literally the entire social fabric has to deteriorate and the mode of production has to collapse before people will even be able to think in terms of their material circumstances. Yeah. That's the problem. Like This is how defeated working people are psychologically. It's not discussed enough in Marxist circles, the way that... No, there's have... still this uh, revolutionary optimism. Uh, and I think people love that perspective because it gives meaning to their activism. Like if you have this kind mm. of perspective, it leads to what some people call revolutionary pessimism, but I think it's realism. There's only so much you can expect of people at this juncture right now, in because political activism requires a lot of commitment. It requires values and it requires time and um, to, to an uncertain end. And the, the subjects of late capitalism have none of that. that. That was the entire basis of my article on virtue and revolution. Like, we have to be realistic about the human capital, for lack of a better term. What can you expect of them? What are they willing to give? Very little right now. I don't. I wouldn't expect any movement of a radical orientation, of a Marxist orientation, to gain much traction at this point. Things have to get decidedly worse. Then you can hopefully... Um, make progress, provided you have the right people who have developed the right disposition and traits to act upon it. 
but the notion of some kind of mass spontaneous uprising or, or even a, a vanguard party leading the masses to uh, a greater future. It's just not practical. What concerns me is I see bright young people that have potential and I worry that they're going to come to the to this same realization and then abandon the political philosophy altogether. But uh, I hate ending conversations on a sad note. So let me read something. You probably know this. Um, it's the Ephesians uh, 6.12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Please visit commonruin.wordpress.com for Marxist analysis from a paleo-communist perspective. And consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash commonruin. All patrons are given access to bonus content and other benefits. Thank you for listening. Mögen die herrschenden Klassen vor einer kommunistischen Revolution zittern. Die Proletarier haben nichts in ihr zu verlieren als ihre Ketten. Sie haben eine Welt zu gewinnen, Proletarier aller Länder, vereinigt euch.